want to introduce Bold Faith to you. Okay, we've been doing this for six years now. Uh, and you know what I do every year? I mean, I'm always part of the planning of Bold Faith. But my focus is on exegeting and then um, providing a, a practical exposition of the text. That's kind of where I live. And so Bold Faith is kind of, okay, it's sort of a second thought. And, and I think if we're going to get out of it, what we need, I need to tell you about Bold Faith. So Bold Faith is something, let me give you a little history. started, I think it was seven years ago, at a prayer retreat. The pastors for the last 10, 15 years, many of our pastors go on a prayer retreat in the fall. And we're there for, for two nights, three, parts of three days. And we pray together the whole time. I mean, that's what we're doing. Praying for our churches, praying for each other, trying to listen to what the Lord wants to say. And seven years ago, I think it was, Jeff Bream out at Northview Christian came with an idea. And that idea morphed into what is now bold faith as the pastors prayed and talked together. And Jeff's been instrumental in this all along. So the goal of bold faith is to translate the faith of the church into action in the world, to extend Christianity beyond our church doors and beyond 12 noon on a Sunday. Uh, We want Christians to live the faith out there and with each other. So one of the things that we do is we encourage our people to meet Christians from other churches to greet them and encourage them out in the world. And one way we do that is by identifying ourselves with these wristbands. They identify us as, as Christians and as bold faith participants. So I'd encourage you to wear one of these. If you're right-handed, put it on your right hand. You're left-handed, put it on your left hand so that when you're reaching, people will actually see your bold faith wristband. And when you see one, connect with a person. Say, oh, you're wearing one of those. What church are you from? And talk with them. At the end of Bold Faith, all the churches gather together for a rally. We come together. This year it's going to be at First Baptist Church. And we hear what God's been doing in people's lives. As they've taken steps of faith that have kind of moved them out of their comfort zone maybe, but they've seen God at work. And we share that with each other. We want to help each other to think as followers of Jesus, too, when we leave this place, when we go to work, when we go to school. We want to make a difference in our world. And so do we prepare this devotional booklet? The pastors write it. Um, we get help from Rollins Doy and Rosalie Courier to edit it, and we put it together so that you can be thinking about how to do that in your world. The theme of this year's Bold Faith, I think it's the most ambitious yet. The theme is Bold Faith, Love Your Neighbor. Each week, Christians from all over the county are going to come together in churches. I think there are 26 churches in our community who will be hearing messages on themes related to loving your neighbor, sometimes preaching the same texts. And and we will be challenged, not just us, but our churches around the community, to take bold faith steps to love our neighbors. And I mean especially the people who live right around us in our neighborhood. We will encourage people to get to know their neighbors, their names, their kids' names, where they work, what they do for fun. And how can you love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor? So the first challenge is to get to know your neighbors. So we're going to give you suggestions on how to do that. First, you received a block map. Did you not when you came in today? Did everybody get one of those? 
Okay, when you leave, you need to get one. They're on the cafe tables right outside the doors. It'll have eight squares, nine squares on it, and the middle square will represent you. Each of those squares on the map represent the people who live around you. I know if you live out in the country like us, that's a little bit different, but be creative. And we want you to be able to fill out the names of all of your neighbors, the names of their kids, where they work, and something they like on that block map. That means you're going to have to get to know them. We're going to give you a chance to meet your Christian neighbors. So there are people living in your neighborhood who are already followers of Jesus, but they belong to other churches. And many of them are bold faith participants. And we're going to give you the chance to meet them and them to meet you. So if you sign up on that tear-off and say, I want to participate, this is what's going to happen. Your name's going to go on a database. Now, some churches, some of my friends said, we're just going to put people's names on the database, whether they want to be or not. You know, unless they ask to be taken off the database, they're going on it. I said, I don't want to do that. I want people who are saying, I want to be a part of this. I want to see God work in my life and in my neighborhood in ways that are new and fresh. So I want to have you say, this is what I want to do. I want to sign up. And then we're going to put all those names on this database uh, from a local business that blocks everything off in the county into sections. So we're going to have 100 or so neighborhoods, maybe hundreds of neighborhoods, I'm not sure. And the people living in that neighborhood or part of Bold Faith who are in one of our churches will be identified for each other. And then we're going to ask one of those folks to contact the rest and arrange a time for them to meet. Now, and, and to think of ways that they can love their neighbors. You're going to brainstorm with people how to do that. You sit down with people, pray, and think about how can we love our neighbors in our neighborhood. Now, don't think of loving your neighbor as preaching to them. We're not taking any shortcuts. We're not trying to buttonhole people. We want to love them just as Jesus did. Our goal is not to get your neighbors into church. I mean, that's a great thing. It's not even to get your neighbors to accept Jesus because, see, it's a terrible idea to make it your goal for somebody else to do something. That just leads to frustration. Your goal, though, will be to love your neighbor just like Jesus told you to do. Now, first you've got to know them. And to do that, we're going to give you some suggestions. Uh, some Christians, we're going we're to give you a sheet of things that when you get together with your neighbors, you can say, what's going to work for us? Maybe it's none of those things, but just to prompt ideas. So some Christian neighbors are going to throw block parties for their neighborhood. We have one of those inflatable things one of the churches does, and, and the people who gave it to the church said, use it for ministry. So we're going to pass that around for the kids, you know, the bounce, whatever that thing is, I don't know. But we'll probably have more neighborhood block parties in Branch County this year than in its history. People doing what we're doing in bold faith. Uh, other folks might want to throw a Sunday Sunday, an ice cream party or a, a barbecue, or a free car wash, or a, a Bible study. Or they might get together and say, how can we help our elderly neighbors who live right near us? What can we do that's going to help them and, and plan some kind of a project? thing is, the church leaders, some of them said, oh, we can do this, we, let's do this. And I said, wait a minute, guys. I don't think we should do this from top down. Tell people, here's what you ought to do in your neighborhood. We should let people get together and watch the Holy Spirit work in their midst as they think and pray about how they can reach their neighborhood. You imagine what would happen if 500 people did this? 
And I mean, we have nearly 500 people at Lockwood. Well, we have more than that every month, way more than that. But if just 500 people from the various churches did this, we would have an impact for the kingdom that reached into the thousands and maybe tens of thousands. What are the benefits? I mean, I know what we do. We say, what's in it for me? Well, let me make some suggestions to you. When we're with people and we're with God at the same time, powerful things are going to happen. We'll be doing what Jesus told us to do, and that will change us. It may be our communities, but it'll certainly change us. I sometimes think that people get stuck primarily because there's some place or places in their lives where they're just not doing what Jesus told them to do. And they wonder why nothing ever changes. So we can change. Our faith will grow and our doubts will diminish as we see God at work in our lives. And we will make new and possibly lifelong friends, both in the churches and in our neighborhoods. And the churches in our community will experience the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. Now, what will it take? What's it going to cost? It's going to take getting to know your neighbors and meeting with other Christians. And that means taking time. And I know some of you just said, okay, I'm done. I don't have any time to give. Look, if you don't have time to do what Jesus said to do, your life is all screwed up. And you've got to make changes. It'll take some courage. It's going to move us out of our comfort zone. I mean, calling your neighbor that you've never talked to before, or going over there, or inviting them over to your house, I know that can be uncomfortable for people. So it's going to take some courage. It'll take stepping out in faith, which is what God intends anyways. But this is an investment. There are risks, but frankly, I think they're pretty small. But the potential rewards are great. So, are you in or not? If you're in, I want you to mark that tear-off sheet and let us know. You don't have to do it this week. You can do it in the next couple weeks. But we're going to get this thing rolling. Now, turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at our text, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Hey, you know what? Loving your neighbor is not an option for Christians. It's not a good suggestion. It's a great commandment, the second greatest commandment, to be specific. And there are no exemption clauses to this commandment. The Bible doesn't say love your neighbor and then add an addendum that lists all the possible exclusions, excluding foreign neighbors, jerk neighbors, neighbors who borrow stuff and never return it, drunken neighbors, angry neighbors, neighbors who violate my property rights. Uh, neighbors whose carts needs mufflers or who play their music too loud. There are no exclusions. You don't get a deferral because you don't know your neighbor's name. You don't get a pass because you're the busiest guy on the block. This is, according to Jesus, the second greatest commandment ever given. God takes it seriously. Don't be surprised if at the judgment, Jesus asks if you loved your neighbor, or why you didn't. Loving neighbors can change things, not least you and your neighbor, perhaps the entire community. A group of pastors in Denver met with the, their mayor. So one of the guys knew the mayor. 
or knew enough had contacts. And these 20 pastors met with the mayor and said, what can we do as churches? How can we cooperate together to benefit the community? And they expected he would say something like, well, you can build a community playground in this neighborhood. Or if you started a program for at-risk kids, that would be great. And the mayor told them, that's what people always expect when they ask this question. But he didn't want them to build a playground or start a program He wanted them to do what Jesus said and be good neighbors. The mayor said that if people would regularly look on their elderly neighbors, for example, or check on Joe, that OCD guy whose grass is always between three and four and a half inches tall, but now it's grown up this tall, or mentor the fifth grade kids whose dad left the family last winter, they wouldn't need all these programs. This is the way he put it. The majority of the issues that our community is facing could be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. This month, we're going to start being a community of great neighbors. We're going to obey Jesus and love our neighbors. Before the summer's over, I hope you will have made real strides in knowing your neighbors, knowing their names, knowing what they do. And I hope that dozens, maybe hundreds of people at LCC will join their fellow Christians from other churches to plan and pray together about how to bless and love the people in their neighborhood. Now, you can succeed in loving your neighbor even if you're busy. Okay? Even if you're an introvert. Even if your neighbor could care less whether you love him or not. But... And this is where we need to begin, Bold Faith Month. You'll never succeed in loving your neighbor if you don't love your God. You can't keep the second greatest commandment if you ignore the first. Loving God prepares you to love your neighbor. It grows you. It changes you. It removes obstacles. It enlarges your vision. It inspires you. When you love God, you will love your neighbor. And a synergy will develop. Love for God inspires love for neighbor. And love for neighbor will increase your love for God. Loving your neighbor is the second greatest commandment, but the first and greatest of all, repeated in the Old Testament and New and sanctioned by Jesus himself, is love the Lord your God. The text we begin this year's Bold Faith Initiative is Luke 10, starting with verse 25. We'll look further, because we're not going to get very far today. But let me read it. On one occasion, I'm going to go through verse 28. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this. And you will live. The expert in the law Luke describes may have been what the NIV routinely refers to as a teacher of the law or what the King James Version calls a scribe. But recent scholarship has found that off-duty priests, so priests, there were so many priests in Israel by this time that they served on duty for one month at a time. But recent scholarship has found that many off-duty priests were also approached as experts in the law, as law scholars. So this guy might have been a priest. 
Luke says he stood up. So you can picture that, right? He stands up, uh, which is the way to be respectful in that culture when asking a question of a teacher. But Luke also says that he was testing Jesus. Now, at this point in the narrative, Luke has not shared hardly any hostility towards Jesus. So it's possible that this law scholar is just trying to gauge Jesus' grasp of the Bible, not trying to trip him up. Whatever the case, the law scholar asks a question that was probably familiar at the time. What must I do to inherit eternal life, or literally the life of the age, the life of the age to come? I find this very interesting, since later in the same gospel, later in Jesus' ministry, another man came to him asking the same question. I mean, word for word, exactly the same question. What's interesting is Jesus gave a different answer. The other man was the one we know as the rich young ruler. You can read about his story in chapter 18. When he asked the same question, you remember what Jesus did? He invited him to join his disciples. He didn't do that with this law scholar. So if both men asked the same question, why did Jesus give different answers? I think the reason has something to do with the way Jesus related to people. He always met them where they were. The law scholar wanted a debate. The young ruler wanted direction. The scholar stood. He asked an abstract question. He waited for a scholarly reply. The young ruler knelt, asked an intensely personal question, and waited for orders. The one thing the two guys had in common, I realized, is that neither one got the answer he expected. The scholar wanted to see what Jesus was made of. I think Jesus wanted to see what the ruler was made of. Or more likely, he wanted the ruler to see that for himself. The ruler wanted to do. The scholar wanted to discuss. So Jesus spoke to the law scholar on his subject, the law. Since the scholar spoke law, Jesus asked him what the law said and how he read it. The man had been a fisherman. Jesus might have talked about fishing technique. If he'd been a farmer, he might have talked about the harvest. Jesus knew and knows how to speak to people right where they are, to speak into their lives who they are in ways they can understand. And by the way, as you love your neighbors, you have to assume that before you even talk to them. Jesus knows these people. He knows how to reach them. You don't, but he does. I think Jesus took one look at the law scholar and knew that this was a guy who was more interested in sharing his own thoughts than he was in hearing Jesus's. So Jesus obliged. He turned the question back on him, and the scholar couldn't wait to answer. He's like the kid that we all knew in school whose hand shoots up every time the teacher asks a question. You know, the one who looks like he's going to burst if the teacher doesn't call on him. The law scholar wanted to give his answer. And when he did, it was a great answer. In fact, it's the very one that Jesus would later use when another religious scholar, one who was clearly hostile, tried to trip him up. His answer comes from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, and passages that were well known to every Jew. Love the Lord your God. So Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord Our God 
is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And this is the Leviticus 19 passage, love your neighbor as yourself. When the law scholar finished giving his answer, I think he was expecting either applause or debate. He may have thought Jesus would agree with him or he might argue with him. He might say, oh, no, the greatest commandment is the first of the Ten Commandments or something like that. But he wasn't expecting Jesus to do what he did or to say what he said. When he finished his answer, Jesus said, you got final jeopardy right. You answered, literally, you answered correctly. And then he added, do this and you will live. That took the scholar completely off guard. And we'll talk about that next week. It occurs to me that this guy was a lot like us. He was a a whole lot more comfortable talking about the Bible than living it. But it's not the person who has the right answers who wins, who will live, not according to Jesus. It's the person who loves God and loves others. Jesus knew that love is a matter of life or death. We were made to love, to love God, to enter into the fellowship of the blessed Trinity, to share in their love for each other and for everyone else. Eternal life, this is something people never get, but it's so important. Eternal life, apart from eternal love, is not a happy ending. It's a horror story. And that's true because anyone who does not love abides in death. God did not make us because he needed us to do something for him. We're not in the world because God needs our help. He made us to love and to be loved. You and I were made for love. And things will never really work the way they're supposed to in our lives until we love. You can have money, health, looks, cars, a vacation home, the newest tech, friends, a reputation in the community, everything you ever wanted, but you can't be you unless you love because you were made for that. An airplane is made to fly. A phone's made to communicate. A lamp is made to light. A U of M fan is made to make excuses. (laughs) An oven's made to bake. A boat's made to float. A pen's made to write. And a person is made to love. Our only hope of ever becoming our true selves is to love. Now, there'd be no hope at all if it wasn't for God. Sin and evil damaged humanity so much that we were beyond any hope of repairing ourselves. The best we can do is give a little love here and there to the people who love us and are closest to us. But God came to our rescue. He reintroduced love into our lives by loving us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so St. John writes, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Otherwise, we wouldn't. He made it possible for us to begin to love by sending his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
God opened the door and invited us to love by giving us his son. And then he went further. He escorted us through the door and into the eternal dance of love with the blessed Trinity itself by giving us his spirit, the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. God's love is in us by his spirit, enabling us to love him and others, and so become our true selves. What's the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love. Now, I know he goes on to say more things than that. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. But you know that fruit there is singular. The fruit of the Spirit, I think, is love. And all those other things are aspects of what love looks like in relationship to God and to people. Trouble is, there's a lot in our lives that is not love. Right? God is clearing that stuff out, hauling it to the dump, cleaning us up. That's the beautiful thing the Bible calls sanctification. God wants us to love with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole strength, and our whole mind. That kind of love is life, real life, eternal life, the life of the age to come. Do this, Jesus said. Love God and love others, and you will live, not just someday, but you'll become more alive now than you've ever been with the life that comes from the Spirit. It's not the life of religion. It's not the life of right answers. It's the life of love. How can a person who doesn't love God now Start loving God and get on the road to becoming himself, his true self. Not by giving, but by receiving. Not by trying, but by believing. If you want to enter the eternal dance of love, if you want to become your true self and live a life of love, you begin by receiving God's love for you. You accept what he's done for you through his son, You say yes to his love. And by faith, you place yourself in his hands and under his guidance and authority. I'm going to go a little bit longer. I think we need to say this. As we begin this Bold Faith Month with a focus on love, I I need to remind you that love is in the biblical sense. The sense that the the law scholar and Jesus were talking is not a feeling. When we talk about love in our culture, we think of it as a, a feeling, as a strong affection. I really like you. I like being with you. I like the way you make me feel. When we say I love him or her with all my heart, we're thinking of this powerful feeling that we have. But when the Bible was being written, no one would have thought of love from the heart as being an emotion. The seed of emotion among the ancients was not the heart. It was the stomach. You know, we've carried that over into our culture. We say, I've got a gut feeling. I've got butterflies in my, not my heart, in my stomach. They knew that emotion can often unbalance a person. Not that it's not good, But it can unbalance us, but the heart stabilizes us. They thought of the heart as a person's center, that place of 
balance, the place from which he or she makes choices and decisions. The law scholar wasn't saying, and Jesus was not affirming, that the greatest commandment is to muster positive feelings about God, but to make choices and decisions that align with a total life commitment to him. Loving God is not about feelings, and neither is loving neighbors. And yet, most people find their feelings fall in place when they begin to give God his place. As love for God increases, feelings of joy and peace also increase. But Jesus didn't want us to try and feel something, not even joy and peace. He wanted us to try and love someone, God, with all our heart, our choices, with all our soul, And this needs a whole lot of unpacking, and I don't have time to do it now. But our soul is that thing that binds us all together. It's who we are, makes us unique in the world. It's our identity. Our soul would involve what our life organizes around. So our family, our future, our retirement, our kids, our soul is what makes us us. With our bodies, that is our strength, all our strength, and all in a way that's thoughtful and wise with our minds. Loving God. We're going to talk about, this is the month of love your neighbor. But loving God is the secret to loving your neighbor. But really, it's the secret to everything. Do this, and you will live. All right, let's pray. God, help us. I want us to rush out and love our neighbor. But Lord, keep us from the false step that thinks we can do that without loving you. There's so much stuff in us that's just not love. And we so need your help. All those obstacles to love, Lord, would you remove from us? We're aware of what some of them are, and it scares us to even think about it. But, Lord, would you do that? And it's almost too much to ask, but it's what you want. So we ask, make us those people who love you with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and all our strength. The people who really love our neighbors as ourselves. Ask this in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus.